0: All right, well, we are in our Made for More series, and so as we get into uh, part five of Made for More, uh, we've been going through a study here on the Ten Commandments, and we have not been going in order. So if you are here tonight and you think we are on the next list, we are not. We are on number six tonight, the Sixth Commandment, Made for More part five, but we're on the sixth commandment, so as you can tell, we are not going in order. Uh, But we are talking about four words tonight, four words, and so as we jump into this study, uh, let's pray for our time here, and then we'll get started tonight. God, as we asked earlier, God, would you just speak tonight? God, would you clear our minds of the things that may be distracting us, and Lord, help us to focus for the next few minutes on your word God, we pray that you would help us to see and understand what you have for us. And God, give us courage to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're on Made for More, number five. And so the fifth part of the series, So as we're going through the Ten Commandments, we're uh, trying to approach this from a little bit different perspective uh, to see what it is that God has for us. So, of course, the Ten Commandments were written uh, thousands of years ago and yet they still apply so relevantly to today's world. And so as we get into the Sixth Commandment, we want to start with the question, and that question is this. What is the value of human life based upon? So Wednesday night was a little bit friendlier. I was a little closer, but we're still going to have some dialogue tonight. So this is the dialogue part of our message tonight. So there are no wrong answers, and I'm not going to take your answer and. Confirm it or deny it. I just curious uh, as we pull the audience here. What what is the value of human life based upon? And this can be, of course, I know you have inside the church answers, but this also will include outside the church answers. What would you say the human that human life is based upon? The value. Wheels are turning. I can see. What do what skill? Okay, skill. That's, that's very true. What else? What can you think of that the world says, yes, we're God's creation? Okay, so that's the value is who made us, the creator. All right, money. So a, value, a life's value may be on their wealth uh, or accumulation thereof. What else? Can you think of any more things that the world says the value of human life is based upon? Knowledge, okay, so how smart they may be or the things that the information they may have attained. So those are all right. I mean, we, we would all agree that there's many things that the world bases the value of human life upon. And so, so much so that the world says that human life is, and, and one of you got it right, of course, or at least what I had in my slides tonight. Uh, well, what is the human life based upon? What is the value of that? Well, here's what the world says. Now, these are not all exhaustive, but they are probably all inclusive, uh, is that the world says that they're based upon our accomplishments. So what, what are the things that we've accomplished in life, uh, whether it be degrees or accolades or uh, production or performance, what, whatever that may be, what are the things that we have accomplished in life? And, and those who have accomplished much, are typically revered, right? Well, this person has done this, or this person has done that. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were talking about education, and they said, well, this person has uh, three master's degrees, and then they said, well, this person has, you know, so, you know, we always, it's always based on accomplishment, and we measure our days based on accomplishment. If you'll remember a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, work and how God has uh, called us to work and that God has given us work and that work can be a good thing. And so, but we measure our work based on what? On our accomplishments. So, what is it that we've accomplished or what is it that we have achieved? And so, the value of human life, the world says, is certainly based on accomplishments, it's based on importance. Uh, you know, certain people have uh, the last name that has importance somehow tied to it, or it may be uh, in a certain area that they may be, uh, their lineage may be different, they may know of someone, uh, you know, so they may be associated with someone that's considered, quote, important. And so the world will say, well, that value, that life is valuable because they're important. And you see, uh, you know, movies sometimes, and they'll say, hey, well, look, you can't do anything to me because I'm this, this is my title. Or this can't happen to me because that's my title. And so the world says value is based on importance as well. Or lastly, it may be on ability, like Jacob said, or skill, right? So it, well, what can you do? What abilities do you have? And, you know, our world celebrates the abilities specifically uh, we see a lot of times in the sports realm, right? They, they have the ability to do something that not all of us can do, which I have another theory on that. You know, God gives size. No one decides how tall they're going to be. No one decides how strong they're going to be. You know, of course, you can work out to enhance your strength, uh, but, you know, I can't make myself to be six foot eight. Only God can do that, right? And so, the ability is certainly contingent upon a God-given gift, but the world looks at abilities and says, well, look, this person is capable of throwing fo- a football a certain distance, or this person's capable of jumping higher than other people, or, or you may see that even in abilities when it comes to the professional world. Well, this person is a good speaker, or this person's a good manager, or this person is uh, good at production, or, or whatever it may be. And so the world looks at those three things, accomplishments, importance, and abilities, and says, okay, well... Based upon those things, here's how much that human life is valued at. And so when we look at that, we say, well, inside the church, we would say uh, that, well, no, human life is based upon God. The value of that life is the same for everyone. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But inside the church, we would say, well, no, that's. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Well, as we look at the value of human life, it becomes so much more higher or so much higher in our minds when it is personal. So what do I mean by that? Well, if, you know, we see on the news all the time, we see unfortunately where catastrophic things take place, heinous acts, crimes, whatever they may be. There was some stuff happened in Thailand yesterday, and so we, we see situations like that, and we say, man, that, that is terrible, and we, we grieve with those people. We yearn for those people that that terrible thing wouldn't have happened, but we move on with our life. You know, we will continue on, and we'll say, well, you know, that is bad, but I didn't personally know those people, and so for us, it becomes a little more personal, and sometimes we may not know that person, but it may have a connection you know, it may, we may uh, see the situation, you know, for instance, of course, it's uh, certainly been all over the news the last couple of weeks, but the situation with the death of Kobe Bryant and, you know, the helicopter situation, and the world certainly has been captivated by that. It certainly has captivated uh, the NBA, the National Basketball Association. The media uh, has been, you know, writing relentlessly about different angles and different things that have happened, and... Of course, you know the world was kind of taken aback when this happened, and I was taken back when it happened. He was forty one when he passed away i'm forty one uh, I graduated high school in nineteen ninety eight he came into the league in nineteen ninety seven and so I you know watched the you know the beginning all the way to the end of two thousand and sixteen of his career and I'm a huge basketball fan, and so you know I see this and I see all the news happen and it's shocking. And so the question is asked, well, why is it shocking? I ask myself this question. Why am I shocked by this? Well, I I don't think it's the imminence of death that shocks us. In other words, we all know that at some point all of us are going to expire. We know that. We know that everyone passes away at some point. It is appointed unto man once to die. The Bible says that. We know that that's going to happen. So, I don't think it's the the fact really that, that He passed away or that people pass away. The world sees it as the value of the life now gone. And, you know, I would say that we see it the same way. Because if we were kin to Kobe Bryant, if he was a brother or an, you know, an uncle or whatever it may be, if we, we were somehow kin to him, well, that, the value of that life now gone certainly would affect us. We, we feel it when, when things like this happen, even when someone who isn't close to us dies. And, and here's, you know, I've heard some people say, oh, well, you know, was his life more valuable? Well, again, value for humans increases, if you will, Based upon the proximity or the personal, you know, the personal nature of that. And so, for the people that were inside of his circle, and and for anyone else for that matter that you know that dies that's close to you, well, it's not that we're shocked that they've passed away. It's not that we revere one life more than the other per se, but it's because we feel connected to this. And here's why I think that is it's because as a child of God, we have eternity stamped on our souls. Like, we know that we were created to live forever. I don't know if you realize that, but that's true for you as well, that what you see on the outside is, is a rental car, if you will, for life, and at some point, it's going to go away. But what, who I am and who you are, that's what lasts forever, And so, eternity is stamped upon our souls. God created us to be that way because we were created in His image, right? And so, we're created to last forever. Now, because of sin, we know that uh, the wages of sin or the payment for sin has become death, Romans 6, 23. And so, when we see people such as Kobe Bryant who passed away, my grandfather uh, passed away last March, when those things happen... We miss those people. I miss my grandfather. And and so it's this angst that we have, not with the fact that it happens, but I think it's just an angst that we have with death alone. Because death wasn't supposed to happen. It's not supposed to be this way. But because of sin in the garden and sin in humanity, all of a sudden now we feel the pain of the separation with that person that we love. You see, The reason we feel this way is because every human life bears the image of God. That's what makes human life so valuable. Now, the accolades, the accomplishments, the abilities, the importance, all of that may come later, but at the the genesis, if you will, or the beginning of who we are, our value originates with the fact that we bear the image of God. Everyone was created. Genesis 126, the Bible says, let us create man in our image. And so God has created mankind in the image of God. And so every human life, whether that life is known by millions or known by no one, is created by God to be in the image of God. So if you are looking for purpose in life, your purpose, the reason that you were created, at the core of your beginning was that you were created by God to be the image of God. Every human that was ever created, every human that ever will be created is for that sole purpose. God was the originator, God was the creator, God was the designer, and God created every one of us to be made in His image. Now unfortunately, uh, it you know, even though we're born in the image of God, we Don't always allow that to be our identity. You see, the fact that human life is created in God's image is what makes human life sacred. That's what makes human life sacred. And so, when we talk about uh, the sanctity of life and we talk about uh, God creating us, what we're ultimately saying is that there is a sacredness apart from what any human thinks to human life. So, regardless of what the world's value system may mark an individual, it doesn't really matter, to be honest, because at the core of who we are is the sacred fact that we were created in God's image. Now, we obviously don't feel the same way when it comes to animals. We don't. You know, as I mentioned, my grandfather passed away last March. Uh, I preached his funeral. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Uh, But my grandfather was 94 years old. He was 94 years old. He lived a long life. I hope to make it to 94. I hope you make it to 94. 94 years old. So, so many things that he experienced in life, and and so many different things happen. And, you know, we're reading through Genesis in uh, D group. And so, we're getting to Jacob's life, and we're getting to Joseph's life. and, And we're going through, and Jacob said, Hey, Joseph, bring your boys here. I want to bless them. And so, all this lineage is going through their life. And so, my grandfather saw all of, you know, different generation after generation take place. And so, we, of course, had a funeral and we celebrated His life. You don't do that for animals. If you do, that's weird, and I don't want to know about it. Right? You're not inviting your friends over and having a service for them. That that just doesn't happen. Now, we may mourn the loss of a pet. Certainly, you you know, I've had animals pass away. You've had animals pass away. But it is not the same when a person dies. Why is that? Well, it's very, very obvious. God has given life to fish and trees and plants and animals, but none of those bear His image. None of those are created in the image of God. And so we see deer lying on the side of the road all the time. You don't think twice about that. I don't think twice about that. Why is that? Because animals were not created in God's image. Only humans were created in God's image. And so that creates this sacredness around the human life. Now, unfortunately, and I wanted to get on a soapbox Wednesday night, but unfortunately our world doesn't see that the same way. We have more protections for birds that build their nests on the top of light poles than we do for a, a baby in the womb. That doesn't make any sense, but that's the world that we live in. You see, the Bible says in Genesis 9-6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So, humanity has this sacredness simply because we are created in God's image. Now, here's the question then, and if you ever get into a theological conversation, you will come across this question. So, let's go ahead and get the answer. So, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they fell in the garden, did they lose the image of God? So, in other words, is, you know, is every person that was born after Adam and Eve, Well, were they not created in God's image? You're going to hear people say some of this. Was that the question? Well, in addition to what happened in the garden, we see that moral awareness is what the creation narrative suggests that Adam and Eve did not have prior to the fall. So, they didn't know there, there was no knowledge of right or wrong in their minds. There was no sin, if you will, prior to the fall. So they were created in God's image. They were not morally aware, if you will, because there was no context for them to compare that. And so prior to the fall, they are living in euphoria. Life is perfect. You know the story. But then we see in Genesis, as we read in chapter 9, verse 6, also again in James 3, 9, that both of these verses indicate that God's image to some significant degree still remains in humans even after the fall. Genesis 9-6 is certainly again after Genesis 3. And so we see that this image is still present even though sin is present. And so there's this struggle about the value of human life. And our, our world every day tries to redefine that. And what is the value of human life? You see, we yearn and we mourn for the loss of human life because when a human life is taken, it is destroying the image of God. It destroys the image of God. So every person possesses that. Whether they choose to acknowledge that or or submit to that, it is still true. And so, it is the destroying of the image of God. And so, as the world sees, as, as believers, we see human life as sacred. As believers, we see human life as something made in the image of God. But the world, again, does not see it that way. And so, what we must do as believers is we cannot allow society to devalue human life. Because remember what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says. Paul says that we are God's workmanship. We're his masterpiece, his poema. We've been made. Uh, this was, we are made in the image of God for the glory of God. And so we're the masterpiece of God. Now, you may not see yourself that way, but that's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says that we're a masterpiece. And so when we talk about humanity and we see the world continue to try to devalue that, we must stand for the value of what human life really is. When a masterpiece, say a work of art, is stolen or damaged or broken, the world says, "Oh, that, what a complete tragedy. Right? You see it all the time. On the news you see something was destroyed or maybe it was a, a historical figure. You know, maybe it was a statue. Whatever it may have been. You know, we've got to preserve it. We can't allow anything to happen to it. Well, God's creation should be viewed the exact same way. We ought to look at God's creation, which of course again is humanity, in the exact same vein. That We ought to say, well, what can we do to preserve that? Well, it would seem obvious that human life is sacred. It would seem obvious that we ought to stand for the preservation of the value of human life being made in the image of God, but unfortunately, it's not. And so, God saw the need to remind us of the sanctity of life, which brings us to the sixth commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, and verse 13, the Bible says, "'You shall not murder.'" That's very clear. There's no, well, what did he mean by that? There's no question about the definition here. It's very simple. God says, you shall not murder. And so what we're going to do here real briefly is we're going to go through some of the obvious things that this means. And then we're going to talk about the other side of Jesus and what he said about it. So what are some of the most common interpretations of this commandment? Well, number one, the most obvious is murder. God said, you shall not murder, and He meant you shouldn't murder. That's what He said. That's what He meant. Well, murder means to put someone to death for selfish reasons. Now, unfortunately, uh, we see that all around our world today. Murder is rampant in some places more than others. And as a matter of fact, I looked up the latest statistics. There were 16,214 murders that took place in the year 2018. 16,000. Now, that's just murder alone. That's not any other death, you know, whether sickness or accident. This is murder. 16,214 murders in 2018. Surprisingly, the state of Louisiana had the highest murder rate in the country per capita. So, it, even though God said you should not do this Yet it's rampantly happening in our world today, and so murder is simply the act of taking one's life with no regard for God's creation. And we'll get into it a little bit later, but this is a a moment, of course it's all obvious, but murder is where someone loses control of themselves and they do something to someone else that they know inherently morally that should not be done, and yet God had to remind humanity, hey, you can't do that. And so, again, the most common interpretation, number one, is, of course, murder. The second one is abortion. The second one is abortion. There's a website that tracks the number of abortions that take place every second. And it's very discouraging to look at that website because the number just continues to roll which signifies a human life. And so, to summarize that number, in the United States, there are estimated to be 125,000 abortions that take place every single day. Every single day, 125,000 abortions take place. Now, we're, we're not going to get into, you know, the definition of any of this. Just Suffice it to say that all of our days are laid out by God, and so the question that we would ask is, well, then who are we to determine those days, which both applies to murder and to abortion? The Bible says in Psalm 139, 15, and 16, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So obviously God is involved at the very beginning. Obviously God is involved in absolutely everything that takes place. And so we see that God says, hey, you shouldn't murder, which definitely includes abortion. You see, God's care for human life from the moment of conception is a wonderful comfort for parents who have been through miscarriages, uh, who have lost children, to know that the life that was lost is certainly known to God and is safe in His arms. And so if that's been you, Melly and I unfortunately experienced that years ago. And this is an encouraging verse that will help us to see it from the way that God sees it that says, hey, Look, I know from the very beginning of inception. And so we see murder, we see abortion. Uh, Another one that's very common today is euthanasia. It's become a hot topic in the world today. I'm not sure why, but it has. It's become much more prevalent in our society. And so euthanasia, if you don't know, is where people can decide to end their life. And there are doctors that have began to become proponents of this to say, well, I can assist you in doing that. And so, the only thing I would say about this is that there is a difference between ending life and ending treatment. There's a big debate about that, but there's a difference. What is the difference? Well, when you decide to end treatment for whatever reason, you are not deciding when you die you are simply deciding that you are going to allow God to determine that. Whereas when you end a life, well, you are determining the end of that life. And so, again, that's a big debate in our society today. I think it's very clear, but unfortunately, not everyone sees it that way. So, murder, abortion, euthanasia, those are all included. Certainly, it's not, again, all exhausted, but those are some of the most common interpretations. And so, as we look at this sixth commandment, that God says to Moses, hey, tell the people you shouldn't murder. And so we're all here tonight, and none of us are in shackles, and none of us are on house arrest, and none of us have, you know, done, uh, you know, you would look at this and say, okay, well, I got that one. If I would have known it was on murder tonight, I wouldn't have come. I've never killed anybody, so I'm good in that category. Well, what if you've never murdered anyone? Does that mean that you and I have faithfully obeyed this commandment? You would know that the answer is no, or I wouldn't ask that question, right? Or should we just move on to the next commandment? I got you shouldn't murder. I'm not going to do that. Let's move on. Well, Jesus made it very clear that the scope of this commandment goes far beyond acts of murder to also include thoughts and desires of our heart to which we all collectively gasp. Because now all of a sudden we went from obedient non-murderers to offenders, right? This is what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, it should be on your handout. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So Jesus quotes the sixth commandment. He said, you've heard, hey, you shouldn't do that. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so there's a whole Levitical law about what would happen if that took place. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So now all of a sudden Jesus takes you shall not murder and he takes it up several levels. So, all of a sudden, we're not feeling so confident about our ability to uphold this sixth commandment. You see, Jesus takes it to a whole new level. What Jesus is describing here is a situation that begins with someone who becomes angry with another person and begins to speak abusively. Now, we've never done that, have we? We've never said anything that we shouldn't say or we've never spoken partially to someone? Because Jesus said this, everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. So now all of us are guilty. And he's being very specific here. He says, when you talk to someone abusively, this is where you've lost control of the sixth commandment. You see, the core issue that Jesus is addressing here is a relational issue. And the problem is, is that we've not been able to peaceably live with each other. Humanity is not very good at getting along. If you don't believe me, might I refer you back to the State of the Union speech or the response to that or pick any other situation. Look at conflict in the Middle East. Look at um, any any decision, you know, it's, it's staggering to me, it's just shocking that people can't have different opinions today. It's got to be one opinion, and it's got to be their opinion, or it's the wrong opinion, and you can't have an opinion. That's not how this works. But Jesus says, hey, look, this is a relational issue. It's not just about you going and taking someone's life. Have you thought about, you know, negative or abusive things to that person? Have you said negative or abusive things to that person? If you go back to the very beginning, you start with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the first Uh, was the first murder, right? But we also see Jacob and Esau and this dissension that takes place uh, between the two brothers. Or we see Joseph and he says, hey, look, I had this dream and you all are going to bow down to me. And they say, we're we're never doing that. And since you said that, we're going to sell you into slavery. And then what? 13 years later, 15 years later, they run into Joseph, and what are they doing? They're bowing before Joseph. And so there's this dissension between the brothers, and then we see today, uh, even in the news and all of the things that take place, is that we just can't get along, that we're having this trouble coexisting in the world in which God created, and He put us, made in His image, to coexist together, but yet we can't do that. And so it's a relational issue that's at play, and that's what Jesus is really addressing here. Jesus is saying, look, I've given you tools for communication. I've given you the ability to get along, and if you strive to live in the identity in which you were created, you can do that, and yet we don't. You see, the tools that God meant for good, we use as weapons to try and get what we want. We try to get what we want. If you'll remember just a second ago, the definition for murder means to put to death for selfish reasons. It's the same version of a different act, is that we're trying to get what we want, and so in an effort to get what we want, we use words, we use manipulation, we use use situations to try to get to that point. And so at the core of humanity failing to have peace with our fellow man is selfishness, is that we want what we want and we'll go to any extreme to get that. We see that in many different ways today. We see that in politics today, most prevalent. But we also see that in churches. I mean, let's be honest. There's a reason Mississippi has more Baptist churches per square mile than anywhere else in the world it's because why? Because, well, I don't like what you said, or you didn't do what I thought you should do, or they voted on the wrong thing, or they did the wrong thing, or they said the wrong thing, or I don't like to preach, or the music's terrible, or whatever. And then they say, hey, why don't you go with me and let's go over to this other church? Or why don't you go with me and let's start our own church? There's churches around the coast that have been started because somebody got mad at somebody and they said, well, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. And they went off and started their own church which I think this is a good place to remind us and everyone else is that the church was never ours to start with. It's Jesus' church, and Jesus is the head of the church, and it's never been about our preference, and it will never be about our preference. And if we keep coming to church thinking that that at some point it's going to be about me, then we're coming for the wrong reason, right? It's always been the bride of Christ, and it always will be the bride of Christ, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what I think or what you think or whatever, what anybody else thinks. It has everything to do with what Jesus says. And that ought to be our blueprint. That ought to be our map. And we ought to ask the question in every decision that we make, it's not what do I think we ought to do or what do I want, but it's what does Jesus want? What does Jesus say about this topic? But we're not that way because we're humans and we're fickle and we want things our way. And so we argue and we split and we, we have all these dissensions because we're selfish and we want it our way. It happens everywhere you go because that's just how humans are. James 1 says it this way, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Do you see why when the world tells you to just follow your heart that that's terrible advice? Because James says very clearly that we are lured and enticed by ourselves. We are drawing ourselves into sin because of the things that that we desire for ourselves, to promote ourselves, or whatever the agenda may be. It is because of me that I'm sinning. It's not your fault. It's not someone else's fault. Well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said to me. It still goes back to you because James very clearly says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So when you get mad at someone, you can start by blaming yourself. It says desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And so every heinous act, every abusive word, whatever it may be, every single one of those always starts with what? It starts with a thought. It says we are enticed by our own desire. When that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. That's why uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we ought to take every thought captive because if we take these bad thoughts that come into our minds captive and we put them before God and say, God, is this something that you want me to think? Is this something that is wholesome? Is this something that edifies you? Then guess what? If it's not, then we won't do that. If you were at the women's conference this weekend, they shared a stat that you, uh, every person thinks 9,000 plus thoughts per day, 9,000 plus thoughts per day, and of those 9,000 plus thoughts, 75% of those thoughts, 80% of those thoughts are negative. That is astonishing. 80% of your thoughts that you have every day are negative. How do you fight against that? They went on to say that not only are 80% of those thoughts negative, but 90% of your thoughts are repetitive thoughts that they repeat from the day before. So, we must be really dumb if we're only thinking of 10% new things every day. No wonder we don't get much accomplished, right? Think about that. 80% of our thoughts are negative, and then... Ninety percent are repeat offenders. That's why Paul talks so much about that in 2 Corinthians 10 and Philippians chapter 4. That, hey, you ought to take every thought captive, whatever things are pure, lovely of a good report. Those are the things that you ought to think on. But what happens is, is we allow negative, sinful thoughts, evil desires to come into our mind. And we sit on it and we think about it and we say, well, it's not that bad. You know, I'm not actually going to go out and do something to Ray. But if I sit here and think about doing something evil to Ray, it'll make me feel better about myself. I'm actually not mad at you, Ray. But right, so we justify it in our minds by saying, well, me thinking about it is not as bad as me actually doing it. Well, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. And so it all goes back to us having this conception, allowing it to give birth, and then when sin is fully grown, well, look what happens. It brings forth death. And yet God said in Exodus chapter 20, You shall not murder. So it's it's our sinful, selfish desires that bring us into this point to where we begin to allow sin to give birth. So what happens is we don't get what we want, and so we act out. We act out. If you came to Men's Stake Night last month, uh, yeah, last month, you saw uh, one of the things that was talked about uh, in the. And our discussion was the rite of passage, if you were there, you remember the rite of passage from a boy to a man in Western culture. How does that happen? What is the rite of passage? At at what point does a young person become a man? Is it when they get a job? I got a job when I was 15, officially. You know, I was mowing grass before then, but I got a job when I was 15. Does that make me a man at 15? Is it when you get a car? Is that when you become a man in Western culture? Is it, I don't know, when you get married? What is the rite of passage? At what point do we say, all right, you have officially become a man? Is it when you have a child? What is it? We don't know. We don't have a rite of passage. We have no clue when you actually become a man. That's why we have 30-year-olds living in basements playing video games of their parents, right? That's why we have people acting out on television that don't get their way. Things don't go their way, and they just start acting out. Why is that? Because they never grew up. Because in their minds, they should always get what they want. And the world tells them, if it makes you happy, then you should do it. And you should always get your way. And if you don't get your way, if you'll act out enough, then you will get your way. And that's where we're at today in society. And we've got a bunch of Older people, certainly this doesn't apply to everybody, but we got a bunch of older people that have just gotten older, but they had not gotten any more mature, and they're still acting like 9 and 10-year-olds, but yet they're 40, 50, 60, whatever their age. There's no movement of getting to where God is on the throne of our life and saying that I'm going to replace my selfish desires with the things that God wants in store for my life, and so we begin to pursue ourselves. That's what the world says, right? Whatever your heart leads you to do, that's what you ought to do. If it it feels good, do it. That's what the world tells us. Follow your heart. You should follow your heart. Well, you know where that leads, right? So how do we get to this point of where we say, look, I know the Bible says I shouldn't murder, but Jesus clearly tells us that it begins with our thoughts. How do we get to this point? Well, like I said, you have this thought that takes the birth in your mind and whatever you do with that thought will determine the next step. If you take that thought before God and you say, God, here's what I'm thinking. What should I do with this? Should I marinate on this thought? Should I act this thought out? Should I deny this thought? What should I do? You ought to have a filter in your brain that does that. It's called the Holy Spirit, and as that comes into your mind, you ought to say, you know what? I shouldn't be thinking about these things. I shouldn't be doing this because what happens is you begin to plan out. Your, your sinful desire will create a way for you to fulfill that thought. How do we know that? Well, James says it. each person when he's tempted he's lured and enticed by his own desire. You are your own worst enemy. And so our thoughts lead us into sin. And so you can stop it. Now, certainly none of us will be perfect this side of heaven, but you can control the thoughts that come into your mind. If 80% are negative and 90% are repeat offenders, you ought to respond, I ought to respond when negative thoughts come into our mind and say, really? I thought about that one yesterday. You don't have a new plan? Isn't that the tactic of the enemy is just do the same thing over and over and over and over and over? I mean, if you've been reading in Genesis, isn't that the same thing that happened? Jacob was deceived, and then Joseph. I mean, he's on down the line. You see, it goes oh, Isaac and Jacob, on and on. It's just the same thing, just in a different way. Isn't that what humanity's doing? Is we just keep doing the same thing in, in a different way over and over and over and over and over? So we have, to, we have to take control of our thoughts. The way that our thoughts come out is, of, of course, obviously through our words. And so... We were leaving the house earlier tonight, and Noah said, What would happen if every thought, the Noah's my son, if you don't know, but he said, what, what would happen if every thought that came to your mind came out of your mouth? I don't know why he asked that tonight. It's weird, I guess, now that I'm thinking about this. Why, what, what if every thought that comes to your mind came out of your mouth? You know what I said? I said, I wouldn't have any friends. You wouldn't either. No one would be around you because you would have made everyone around you mad. What if every thought that came to your mind came out of your mouth? Some people it does. Oh, they don't have a filter. You've heard that before? Our thoughts are manifested through our words, and so the things that we say matter. This is not on your handout, but I want you to write this down. When you get time, go home and read this. Write Proverbs, and I'm going to give you about eight or nine verses to read. Proverbs, and then here's the verses. Proverbs eleven nine. Prover- Proverbs eleven twelve. Eleven seventeen. Chapter fifteen, verse one. Fifteen four. 16-24, 18-20, and 20-15. Now, several verses here that talk about, just in that short span of Scripture, that talk about our words. I'll read the first one, Proverbs eleven nine. 9. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. There, there's some ammunition for you to store in your heart, Psalms 119, 11, that you can store in your heart to help you with your words. So our thoughts manifest itself through our words. There was a saying years ago says I'm not to belittle, insult, hate or kill my neighbor not by my thoughts, my words, my look or my gesture. So this is clearly the most broken commandment. Clearly. We started the night thinking, I'm good. I haven't murdered anyone, so I passed. And yet, now here we are realizing that, in fact, we have broken it probably more than any of the other commandments. You see, the truth is, our words have a way of building up someone or destroying people. One of the things that you'll learn in relational communication is that people love to talk about themselves. And so when you meet someone new and you talk to them, if you ask questions about them, they will talk longer than if you talk about yourself because they like to talk. Everybody likes to talk about themselves. And they'll leave that conversation thinking you're nice even though you didn't say anything about yourself, but you listen to them and you allow them to speak. Relational communication. Well, think about your words. What, what do people leave conversations with you feeling like? Encouraged? Discouraged? Do you plant good thoughts in their mind? Do you help them to take thoughts captive by talking about things that are good? This goes to, I mean, we could talk about gossip. We could talk about slander. We could talk about lying. I mean, all that stuff falls under our words, right? things that are half-truths, things that aren't true, things that create division. You know, are we speaking those words or are we speaking encouraging words? Are we building people up? Are we trying to encourage them? You know, one of the things that we do every night when we put our children to bed is uh, we pray with them and then I, I try to say something positive about something that's coming up. So I'll say, hey, you know, guess what, next week is your birthday, or hey, guess what, you know, in two weeks we're going here or we're doing this. I'm always trying to give something positive, something to look forward to, something that when they go to sleep they're going to think about that, and they may dream about that, but it's the last thought on their mind is, hey, you know, dad was talking, oh, I can't wait till my birthday, or, or whatever it may be, just trying to encourage them. It's the same thing in the mornings before school. So this obviously applies with kids. But, you know, if there's, there's no, we don't argue in the mornings. Do we ever argue? Of course. Not in the mornings, though. Why is that? Because I'm not going to see them the rest of the day. And so I want to leave something encouraging with them. And so we always have the verse of the day. And so we look at the verse of the day and we talk about that on the way to school. And then when they get out, I tell them I love them and have a great day. And something positive, some, hey, you got a test today, you're going to do awesome. It ought to be the same way with our spouses. Every time I leave the house, I kiss Melanie by and say, I love you. Every single time. Every single time. Same thing at night. Good night, I love you. Every single night. It's our, we have the ability as humans to encourage people, to build them up. Or we have the ability to tear them down. You know, I, you hear Testimonies of people growing up, and oh, well, my dad was, you know, he always said this or he always did that. I don't want to be that dad. I want to be the dad that was encouraging and uh, positive and uh, you know uplifting memories, and and that led them to Jesus, right? That encouraged them to be the child that God has created them to be. And so we ought to be careful about the things that we say. And if we'll remember, as our parents used to always teach us, if you don't have anything good to say, well, then shut up, right? that's not what they said, but that was my version. Don't say anything at all. That's the cleaned up version, right? If you don't have anything good to say, well, then stop talking. But we got too many people who think their opinions need to be heard, and so they all want to talk about things that tear down and destroy and create division. And it happens everywhere you go. You take your pick. You see, this applies not just to what we say to someone. But it also applies to what we say about someone. Oh, well, I didn't say that directly to Ray's face, so I didn't offend Ray. Well, did I? Because God heard it. And God knows the intent and desire of my heart. And So if I have ill intent against a person and I say something about them and not to them, I still, it's the same thing. It's a way of us justifying our actions. So if you want to talk about somebody, talk to God about them. That'll help. It'll definitely change your perspective. And so our words are simply an outflow of what's going on in our heart. And so, like I said, if I say it to someone or about them, I still have a problem within me. And so it's an outflow of what's going on in my heart and the things that I care about or the things that I think are important. And so our, our actions begin with thoughts, they manifest themselves through words. And then they result in improperly expressing themselves through anger. Through anger, anger. You hear people lose their temper. People have anger issues. You you may have grown up in a house with someone who had anger issues, who was angry a lot, Uh, someone who acted out in anger. Well, anger always reveals other factors that are really going on in the springs of life, if you will, for us. Anger is just an expression of what's already happened. It's a boiling over point. Anger is really a warning light on the dashboard of life. So, if you have anger issues, you're not mad at what's in front of you. It's things that have led to that that caused you to boil over. Anger is not having self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And what happens for most of us, if not everyone, is how we deal with anger is really very closely related to uh, our parents' reactions. And so if our parents were angry or if they acted out in anger, well, we probably do the same. Most of your personality development comes from your imitation of your parents' behavior. And so if they responded a certain way, well then you may do that. It's not an excuse, it's a reason. And so pent-up anger may be directed towards other people where you hold a grudge, or it may be towards yourself where you have guilt. And so it again, it's typically it's it's build up anger manifests itself after something has been building, and then again, it could be some grudges that you've been. Hanging on to, or it could be, you know, some issues with yourself that you're mad about. And so it manifests itself in the form of a temper, as I mentioned earlier. Is that someone has a short fuse, or you've heard, you know, a short temper. Well, hopefully that's not you, and if it is, hopefully this will help. You see, God's called us not to be angry, but to be slow to anger, right? That we would mirror our Heavenly Father. To those that we are shepherding and those that we influence. So here's where you know. So you may say, "Oh well, Jesus was angry. What about Jesus in the temple? He made a cord of uh, a whip out of cords and and he drove them out of the temple. Yes, he did. But what was Jesus angry about? Was he angry at a person or was he angry about what they were doing? Well, of course, he was angry about what they were doing. You see, anger becomes sin when it focuses on a person and not the action. A couple of verses here: Proverbs twenty nine twenty two, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Psalms thirty seven eight refrain from anger and forsake wrath one more here proverbs 14:29 whoever is slow to anger has great understanding but he who has a hasty temper exacts folly so god is slow to anger and we need to be more like jesus in this respect so god said you shall not murder. Jesus took it a step further and said, hey, if you even think about that, you've already committed that sin in your heart. So, how do we respond to this tonight? How do we respond? Well, I want to give you just a couple of things of what I hope will be helpful as we part tonight. Number one is embrace life. Be be a proponent for life. You are unique, you're irreplaceable, so is every other human in your life. And so embrace life. Be, be someone who's full of life. Look, life is a gift. Breath is a gift. I, I know of some people right now that are very close to death's door, and they have no control over that because if they did, they wouldn't be. And so it's a gift that you have life, that you're breathing And you ought to live life to the fullest, that you ought to embrace life to the maximum amount, that God has placed you in the situation that you're in, around the people that you're around, with influence over the people that you love, and you ought to embrace that. Be life-giving, be life-encouraging, be life-uplifting. Be the best version of you that you can be. God made you specifically with talents and abilities and personalities. And you have, we were talking about the uh, personality test here in the hall here earlier. And, you know, this person was saying, oh, this is my personality type. And, you know, this one said, well, this is my personality type. And here's why I do these things. Yeah, that's right. God made you specifically and uniquely just like you are. And so embrace that and be the best version of that that you can be. We ought to be stewards of the life that God has given us to live. We're not promised tomorrow. I have no idea how much longer I have on earth, nor do you. And so what we ought to do is embrace every second that we're given. Not only that, we ought to be ambassadors for the life of those around us, especially those who have no voice. We ought to stand up. And say that life is valuable. Every life matters. That we want to stand up and say that God created every human life in His image. And God loves every person that's conceived. And we ought to stand up for that. We ought to value that. And the way that we value is what we commit our time to. And so we ought to stand up for that. We ought to embrace life. And then number two is to pursue peace. So if you don't like something and it's your personal opinion, get some context on that. Tell somebody, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Is this selfish? Because the answer is, will it promote the kingdom or not? You know, so many times we stake claims on things that benefit us, but they don't benefit the kingdom. If it benefits the kingdom, then I'm all in with you, and we'll go all the way to the end, and I'll fight with you all the way to the end if it benefits the kingdom. But if it's just a personal preference, it's not a hill to die on. And so we ought to pursue peace with each other, that we ought to offer forgiveness before it's requested. Now, I went to meddling, right? Offer forgiveness before it's requested. Guess what? People are going to do you wrong all the time. People are going to say things they shouldn't say. Is it worth being tied up in knots the rest of your life over that? You see, the most difficult forgiveness to extend is the one without an apology. But in order for you to live in peace, you have to be at peace, right? So pursue peace. When, of course, the Kobe Bryant tragedy took place, uh, you know, they were interviewing lots of people. And so if you know anything about Kobe Bryant, he played basketball with Shaquille O'Neal. And so they played for the Lakers for several years and did well. And, uh, but they had this, this contention between themselves because they were both number one guys and they both wanted to be number one and they were on the same team. So it was hard for them to coexist as number ones when only one person can be number one. And so they had this contentious relationship. And so in 2016, when uh, Kobe retired in his last game, uh, Shaquille O'Neal was covering that game. He was the uh, announcer, broadcaster for that game. And he uh, spoke to Kobe that night and told him to do well. Uh, As a matter of fact, in Shaq's words, he told him to get 50 points. And Kobe ended up getting 60 points in his last game. And that was the last time, according to Shaq, that they spoke to each other. 2016, and so they interviewed him uh, on TNT, and he was talking. And this guy's seven foot two, I think, seven one, seven two, weighs every bit of 350 pounds. He's a massive human being, and he sobbed on nationally broadcasted television because it had been three and a half years since he had spoken to Kobe, and he said, "No, no dissension is worth it. No dissension." And so here's these grown men. I mean he he had to pause multiple times in the interview because he couldn't he couldn't stop crying. And all of a sudden you see over the league, all these guys that had these petty beefs with each other, all of a sudden are offering forgiveness. And so you you see all these messages sent out, hey brother, I'm sorry, you know, I I shouldn't be mad at you about that. Please forgive me. And all these guys who are these hard-nosed, you know, basketball players, they represent the, the peak of human fitness. And in everything that a, a male would say, oh, I, you know, I wish I. Would, but they're saying, look, man, nothing, nothing matters in light of what happened. All, all this, you know, basketball is a game. These relationships—that's what matters. And so you saw like this flood of forgiveness. They canceled basketball games. All of a sudden, it didn't matter about revenue and ticket sales and all that. It mattered about a life. And so, unfortunately, it took the passing of a person to bring about this reconciliation. But. Many people settled their disputes in that moment. That was encouraging to me. You see, we ought to seek to bring God's blessing everywhere that we go. We ought to leave places better than we found them, whether it's the grocery store, whether it's the family room, or whether it's our Sunday school class, or wherever it may be. Paul writes in Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. So he says, do your part to pursue peace. 1 Peter three ten and 11, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So as we part tonight reading Exodus chapter 20, And we see where the Bible says in verse 13, you shall not murder. Here's what I want to leave you with. Don't be responsible for the death of others, either by your words, your thoughts, your attitudes, or your actions. Or in the words of the theologian Toby Mack, speak life. Speak life. Smile. Embrace life. Encourage each other. Build people up. In a world filled with selfishness, be like Jesus. Go home and read Philippians. You say, well, what, how do I respond to situation? What should I do? Read Philippians chapter 2. That's what you should do. You should go home and read Philippians chapter 2 and you're going to love it so much, then you're going to read chapter 3, and then you're going to love that so much, you're going to read chapter 4. And if you, if you and I can get good at being Philippians 2 and Philippians 4, we're going to be all right. The world's going to be a better place because we're going to be transmitting Jesus in all that we do. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus took the form of a servant. He says in in verse 5 that we ought to have the mind of Jesus. Well, if you read the verses before that, he tells you what the mind of Jesus was. In Philippians 4, he tells us all the things that we should think about. And then the famous verse 13 of Philippians chapter 4, after we've done all those things, guess what? Now we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. There's a reason that it's in that order. So embrace life, pursue peace, and I think we'll be much closer to who Jesus wants us to be. Amen? Let's pray.